equipment, and we'll see what we do. I brought along some one of my systematic theologies, and I'm thinking about discussing theories of the atonement, do a little doctrine, okay? So, as we pray, I asked Elizabeth to remind me, and I would have forgot, so she did, thank you. Um, we need to pray for Roger Oakland. I don't know if you heard, heard the news. Roger is a wonderful brother who's been standing for the truth for years. And he's been a part of the Calvary Chapel, has been, I believe, one of their better speakers and, and teachers. Well, Calvary Chapel Radio Network kicked him off the air. He's been on, he's been on uh, for 15 years, and he has regular listeners, and they took him off the air because of his correcting false teaching and apostasy in the church. He got kicked out of his office. So, um, <laughs> anyhow, Roger is a good brother, and uh, I'll be actually he'll be speaking at that Stealing the Mind conference that I'm speaking at in February, so I'll get the chance to see him out there in California. And we've had him speak at our church, and he's written a really good book that's out right now. So. Uh, we'll pray for him, and then we'll also pray for the saints around around the world that are listening and around the country. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our dear brother, Roger Oakland, who has pointed people to the truth of the gospel for so many years. He's warned people about religious delusion in the world. He's pointed people to a literal understanding of the Bible. But now, even... That sort of voice is evidently not welcome amongst our own supposed evangelical movement. And Lord, we pray for that you would encourage him and raise up other outlets and opportunities for him to, to continue his ministry and to continue to reach out to people. And we pray for others like him who are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We also pray for the saints that are scattered uh, different cities, different countries around the world who listen uh, to this Sunday school class, and we want them to know that they're a part of us and that we pray for them. Lord, bless them and help them find the remnant that they might gather together and break bread and pray and seek your face together. This morning, Lord, we think about what you've done for us. We're going to talk about the atonement, and may our hearts be attuned to the truth of the Scripture, and may we never get so sophisticated that we forget that at the real base of everything is the fact that we're washed by the blood of Jesus and that we have a home in heaven and that we're part of the family of God. For that, we, we are grateful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, let's, let's introduce this idea by... Discussing 2 Corinthians 5, 14. I'm going to read 14 and 15. It's just two verses, but this material is dense. It's really packed. It's really important material. And here we are going to see biblical understanding of the atonement and what I believe is clear teaching of the substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 
And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Okay. Now, I mentioned theories of the atonement. In theology, that's what they call it. Frankly, there are a lot of theories of the atonement, but the doctrine of the atonement taught in the Bible, I think, is much more straightforward than people want to admit. And uh, the, the idea is of the substitutionary atonement is front and center here because it says one died for all. Now, there's a Greek word, huper, that's discussed uh, um, in this regard. But according to the Greek scholars, in this sort of relationship grammatically, even though there's a range of meaning, huper is used on our behalf. On our behalf, in this, co- in this context. And, of course, this doctrine of substitution is taught in the Old Testament. Last year at Easter, remember, I preached the gospel from Isaiah 53. And I had no problem doing that because the gospel is in Isaiah 53. Uh, where's my mic man? Oh, <laughs> right in front of me. <laughs> Hiding there. Could you... Uh, uh, Robert, read Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. And I'm going to talk about substitutionary atonement. And uh, the reason I think it's important to talk about substitutionary atonement is under attack from several quarters in our theological world today. All right, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he... so. I don't know how anyone can say that that doesn't have the idea of substitution. Now, the attack against the substitutionary atonement is com- comes from those who would say, number one, they don't like the idea of God's wrath against sin. They don't like the idea of a vengeful God who's demanding payment for sin. That's one of the issues. And another one is that they don't believe that Jesus, some are teaching that they don't believe Jesus actually paid the full penalty, or bore God's wrath against us, and, uh, and is denied on that basis. And one of the most popular people in America who's ever attacked the substitutionary atonement is Charles Finney. And Charles Finney called this legal fiction, which is what Rome calls it. And, and Finney says that the penalty for sin is spending eternity in hell. So if Jesus didn't spend eternity in hell, then he didn't pay the penalty for sin. That, that's Finney's legal reasoning. So he taught something called this moral government theory of the atonement. So I... Diane, do you want me to get, get that big, thick uh, green book out of my... And then a, there's a notebook that goes with it. I was taking notes on Thank you. I got out my trusty green monster, we call it in seminary. 
In the good old days, we literally had to read this. We had to read this entire book and be tested on a third of it, a third of it, a third. It went through three quarters. And this was in 92 and 93 when I read Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. And lately, as people have been asking me about systematic theology, I've been consulting this. I hadn't read it since I was in seminary other than here and there. And this is a fabulous theology. I recommend Millard Erickson Christian Theology. It, it, we called it at seminary the Green Monster because it was so big and we had to read it. Now, he, has a, he, he continually has a nice summary of the theological issues, you know, whatever it may be. He'll say, here's this view, this view, this view, and this view. Then he'll say, I'm going to defend this one, whatever one he defends, and here's why. And he does that with the, the, the uh, atonement here. So I took some notes from this. And I want to talk today, as we're looking at a passage that teaches substitution, um, the, the doctrine of the atonement and why it's important. And I have a few little bit here from Millard to talk about this. And I'm going to quote him, 782. He, he does a great job of showing why the doctrine of the atonement is so important and why we better get it right. Okay. And here's what he says. In the doctrine of atonement, we see perhaps the clearest indication of the organic character of theology. That is, we see that various doctrines fit together in a cohesive fashion. The position taken on any one of them affects or contributes to the construction of the others. This is absolutely true. When we look at different theories, I'll point out how that happens. Back to Erickson. Here the doctrines of God, man, sin, and the person of Christ come together to define man's need and the provision that had to be made for that need. So, atonement touches on all these other doctrines. And if you get off on some other doctrine, you'll get off on this one as well. If you have a deficient understanding of the doctrine of Christ, that affects your doctrine of atonement. If you have a deficient understanding of the doctrine of sin and man's depravity, that will affect your doctrine of atonement. If you have a deficient understanding of uh, God in his character and his nature, like somebody like Greg Boyd, well, you'll come up with a different doctrine of atonement. That's exactly what happens. And uh, so the substitutionary atonement comes under attack generally because people have some other false doctrine that makes substitution distasteful to them. And it doesn't fit with their other false doctrine, whatever it might be. Um, so he, then he goes on, our doctrines of God and of Christ will color our understanding of the atonement. For if God is very holy, righteous, and demanding being, then man will not be able to satisfy him easily, and it's quite likely that something will have to be done on man's behalf to satisfy God. If, on the other hand, God is an indulgent, permissive father who says we have to allow humans to have their little fun sometimes, then it may be sufficient simply to give man a little encouragement and instruction. If Christ is merely a man, then the work he did serves only as an example. He was not able to offer anything on our behalf beyond Beyond, beyond his perfect example of doing everything he's required to do, including dying on the cross. If, however, he is God, his work for us went immeasurably beyond what we were able to do for ourselves. He served not only as an example, but as a sacrifice for us. The doctrine of man, broadly defined to include the doctrine of sin, also affects the picture. If man is basically spiritually intact, he probably can, with a bit of effort, fulfill what God wants of him. Thus, instruction, inspiration, and motivation constitute what man needs and hence the essence of the atonement. If, however, man is totally depraved and consequently unable to do what is right no matter how much he wishes or how hard he tries, 
then a more radical work had to be done on his behalf. Okay, so I thought that was a good introduction to the, the, it, the, the essential nature of the doctrine of the atonement. Now, we're studying a verse that says, He died for all, therefore all died. He died on our behalf. He died for sins. Christ Jesus uh, died for our sins. Things like that. These statements are all affected by the doctrine of atonement. Now, let me give you a background on some of the historical theories of the atonement that we need to uh, examine and then see if there's something wrong with them. Uh, And I'm just following Millard Erickson's outline here. The first one that he discusses is the Socinian idea. Socinianism, by the way, is the root of this open theism of today. What's now called open theism, which says that God doesn't know the future, in, in, in history, several hundred years ago, it was called Socinianism. And Edwards talks about it. And so there's a limited view of God's power and God's sovereignty. So according to Socinian view of the atonement, atonement was an example. Um, Socinianism also embraced Pelagianism. Now, Pelagius taught that man has the ability to overcome sin by acts of his own will. There's no sin nature. There's no depravity. There's no fallen nature that's inherited from Adam, according to Pelagius, which, which is, by the way, a heresy that's been condemned throughout church history, not only by Protestant creeds, but by the Roman Catholic Church. All right? But it's still believed by some today. And, and this whole moral government theory of the atonement is also based on Pelagianism. If man is able to obey God, then why do, you, why do you need a substitute to die for your sins? That's what they say. So uh, human ability was, was believed by the Socinians. Uh, they did not believe there was such a thing as re, re, retributive, retributive justice. God doesn't take vengeance on anyone. God doesn't pay back sinners for their sins. Now, that sound, does that sound heretical? There's no retributive justice. Now, of course, this denies all what we were just studying a couple of weeks ago. We all, even for the Christian, we appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive, according to deeds done in the body. Even, even in, in the understanding of a substitutionary atonement, there still is rewards for good for the Christian and degrees of punishment for the wicked as we showed you in the Scripture, where they say there's no retributive justice in God. Now, you think, well, who would teach that? Well, I was visiting my mom one time, and she's Methodist, and we went to the Methodist church in Tucson, and as I sat there, and Diane had to keep me from jumping up, and she saw me. (laughs) She had to almost hold me down. I got so mad. The, the, The pastor... She said this, she, the pastor, she says, God does not judge sin. That's what she said in church. God doesn't judge sin. So why am I here seeking forgiveness? Why am I sitting in his pew? (laughs) She shouldn't have held me down. She didn't want me to embarrass my mom. (laughs) Anyhow. Um, God will never punish the innocent for the guilty. So they would. So for the Socinian view, 
the doctrine that the Bible clearly teaches is uh, abhorrent because we're saying God punishes the innocent, Jesus Christ, for the guilty, us. And they say God won't do that. Now, have you heard anything like that lately in the church? Remember that statement uh, from the, a guy in England, the emergent guy, that, that this doctrine is bad advertising for God and it, it makes God uh, guilty of cosmic child abuse? All right. Literal. Okay, so if we don't study theology and we don't study theology and church history, the same heresies come back and people go, oh, well, look at this nice new idea, better way to look at the Bible. It's just an old heresy. Yes, Troy. Uh, you just said what I was going to say, some of the heretics in the liberal church calling it cosmic child abuse. But yeah, they're calling God a child abuser. All right, so that was a Socinian view. Oh, Keith, over here. So, so that's the Socinian uh, atonement by example. So what do they believe it was, it was going on? Well, God was just showing us a good example to kind of get us pointed in the right direction. And I think that it's hard for, uh, until you've been subject to that, it's very difficult to understand what that means. I went to a Youth of the Mission School of Evangelism, and they were teaching how you needed to be so you could go out and evangelize the world and change things, and they had this guy, Gordon Olson, come in teaching moral government, which is along the same lines. And basically, you're subjected to day, you know, morning and afternoon teachings and how God set an example of how you're supposed to be. So if you just be that way, then people will get saved and his kingdom will come. Yeah. So all we have to do is be like God and then it's fine. Yeah. And the more you believe that, that that's how you have to be, the more depressing it is because we're not like that. And the, yes. the essence of, of substitution is that we can't be like God. Therefore, God is like God and we can honor him and, and follow him as opposed to try to be more like God on our own. It just doesn't work. Absolutely. I, I, I actually heard a, a tragic story not long ago about a, a, an elderly saint who had been serving God since his youth, and somebody gave him, a couple of years before he died, somebody gave him a copy of a book written by a current moral government teacher. They're still out there. They're still coming into YWAM. And it was a YWAM person who told me that, that this evil was coming into YWAM and who was withstanding it. But anyhow, this book was given to an elderly saint, and after he got done reading it, he was convinced that he wasn't saved. And he despaired of his, of, of, of his assurance of salvation the last two years of his life before he died because he came to believe that you could perfectly obey God and that anything that says anything less of that is just an excuse for sin. And, and so he examined himself and said, I'm obviously not saved because I can't do that. So there's false teaching. It has, it has consequences. Uh, the reason we concern ourselves with correcting these things is that if you believe, to the degree you believe things that aren't biblical, whatever it might be, it will harm us. It will harm us spiritually. It will harm our families. It will harm our loved ones. It will harm churches. It will even harm our society. And the bigger thing is the church quits being salt and light because we become corrupted, then we're not doing the job of being the salt and the light. We're bringing restraint. So, the Socinian view. The second one, moral influence theory. <coughs> Excuse me. This moral influence theory, I believe, is, is the... Uh, when you read the emergent church books, 
they don't come out because they don't believe in systematic theology. In fact, if there's anything, as I read book after book after book, if there's anything they hate, it's any systematic theology. They attack it every time they get a chance. They call systematic theology uh, shrink-wrapped, freeze-dried, you know, we don't want fossilized, uh, pejorative terms like that. We don't want any doctrine that's already settled and it's not going to change. We want everything changing and fluid. So they teach, I believe, from reading it, even though they won't subscribe to any theory of the atonement because they think that it's a waste of time even having a theology, they, they just subscribe, in my opinion, to this moral influence theory. Go out and do the social gospel and make the world a better place to live in. It says this, Christ's death... Uh, it was a demonstration of God's love. Now, in a certain degree, that's true. But, but, in what regard was it a demonstration of God's love? All right? And, and I, uh, I withstood Rick Warren on, in my book on this point. He, he, his claim was that when Jesus was on the cross with his arms, he was saying, God loves you this much. That's, that's what he claims. But he never explains why Jesus dying on the cross would, would, would mean love. Why, why is that a loving thing? And, and, and so, really, you're back to this moral influence theory. Kind of showing us we should be better people. Here's, so, so, he's a, Jesus was the one who self-sacrificed, so we should self-sacrifice. Which is what the purpose-driven life teaches. That's their, they don't teach the substitutionary atonement in that book. Um, so Christ is demonstration of God's love. I would say, yes, that's true. But the reason Christ's death is a demonstration of God's love was because his death satisfied God's wrath against sin. Amen. What we could not do, he did, sending his son. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5. All right, God's love takes precedence over God's justice in the moral influence theory. So if you just preach a God of love which is true about God, to the neglect of other attributes of God revealed in the Bible, you're teaching a God we don't know. A God who has love but has no justice is not the God of the Bible. Yes, a God Moses didn't know, that's for sure. Okay, God's love takes precedent over God's justice. The effects of Christ's death um, was to motivate man, not satisfy God. This is the moral influence theory. Christ's death was to motivate man... By showing man that we ought to be loving people, not to satisfy God. Man needs less fear of God. Okay? So by God, show, according to this theory, so by God showing uh, Jesus dying on the cross, it shows that God is approachable and we don't need to fear him. Um, we, we, just, we need more motivation. We need more love. Um, he suffered and... So that suffering elicits our love. So everything is um, kind of brought into this idea of love. Preach love, 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 love. Now, let me, before I go to another one of these theories, let me point something out. The way we get off track is that we get our theory from philosophical speculation rather than directly from biblical exegesis. All right. And we don't feel it need to follow the example of the apostles or Christ. Now, if all people needed to know was love in order to become better people or to be pleasing to God, how come not a single one of the sermons in the book of Acts was ever on love? Peter didn't preach about God's love in Pentecost. Stephen didn't preach about it 
in his defense. Paul didn't preach about it in his defense. And we read sermon after sermon after sermon in Acts. Uh, Paul before Athens, the Athenian philosophers, they never preached on love. Because Paul said, God has furnished proof to all men by a man, having raised him from the dead, through whom he's going to judge the world. Therefore, he's commanding that all men everywhere would repent. So there's a call to repent and believe, not a call to... Now, is God's love true? Yes. Can we preach sermons on love? Yes. Within the whole counsel of God. But we, we have a deficient doctrine of love if we have a deficient doctrine of atonement. Amen. Because if Christ actually, the sinless one, fully human and fully God, if he came into this world and bore God's wrath against our sin, then we have a fuller, full-orbed, fully informed understanding of how great God's love is. That's a great idea of love. But the, the liberal idea of love is God's a nice guy and he wouldn't punish anybody. But the scripture says, and this is, in this is love, not that we love him, but he, he loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the for, gave himself. Good love. point. Good point. And this is love. If that's an astute, that, it's not love. That's an astute reading. <laughs> Because gave himself up for us is substitution. Right? There is love. He gave himself up for us. Say that in the mic. I actually, Keith beat me to it. I was open to that, right? He was, <laughs> Ryan was on the same page as Keith. That, that's a scary thing. All right. <laughs> no, it's a good just, thing. Just Go to, ahead. To read the whole, the whole passage, it's in First uh, John chapter 4. Um, it says, by this, this uh, uh, verses 9 and 10, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved God and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's propitiation, which means averting God's wrath, satisfying his justice. So they want to take the satisfaction of justice away and keep the love part. But... When you destroy one, you, you diminish the other. And you have God who's more like a permissive parent who loves his child so much that he won't punish him. The Bible says that that's not law. <laughs> yeah, that's your child All right. Now, the moral government theory that, that Keith mentioned, this was invented by a guy named Hugo Grotius and who was a lawyer, and then reinvented. And I don't know whether Finney... Finney wasn't very good at actually citing any sources. He was a very proud man and believed that he could create his own theology with his own brilliant mind without the need of anybody else's help. So I don't know whether Finney uh, uh, would even say that he had been influenced by Grotius, but Grotius was a lawyer, and this moral government theory is a legal theory. It isn't scripture. And Finney was a lawyer, and his, he was using legal theory. And so the idea is that how is God going to run God's government? What would be a good way to run God's moral government? Well, let's, let's see how this work plays out. Um, according to the moral government theory, Christ dying on the cross was a demonstration of divine justice. In this sense, Christ died to show us how serious sin is. 
rather than Christ dying for our sins, he died so that we could see how seriously God takes sins. Amen. In other words, you can't, you can't be concerned about I mean, you have to be concerned about it. Now, another guy that taught this was Albert Barnes. So you have Grotius, Finney, Barnes, this Gordon Olson, uh, and it's still being taught today uh, and redistributed around the, the world by, by people in YWAM that still hold to this. But it's a heretical doctrine. This is not a minor doc problem. It's a heretical doctrine. And I've come out publicly for years saying Charles Finney is a rank heretic. Amen. He, he, he taught human ability more so than anybody since Pelagius himself. All right? And he taught that you could be perfect just by your own choices with a little help from God. Okay. Here's what, here's what moral government says. God has a right to forgive sin, but is concerned about his reputation as the moral governor of the universe. So in other words, if he just forgave sin, which is his right, um, then he, his reputation in the universe would be diminished. The spectacle of what happened to Christ shows us how serious God is about sin and serves as an example to deter us from sin. Christ's death shows that God does hate sin. There's no full payment of sin, but satisfaction sufficient for upholding God's moral government. All right, as I said before, I, I've read Finney's theology, and he says that you can't teach substitution on the grounds that Jesus isn't in hell for all eternity. Okay, now, but now wait a second here. There's a, it's an incongruity because his reasoning is that God is the moral government of the universe, and if he wanted to, he could forgive sin, but it diminishes his reputation. Well, let's just apply that to our belief in the substitutionary atonement. Isn't God able to know what satisfied God's own justice? Isn't God the just ruler of the universe? And if God is satisfied that Jesus died for sins and, and, and there was a blood atonement, and that he rose in the third day, who are we to say that Jesus has to be in hell for God to have satisfied his own justice? It's, 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 uh, I think it's blasphemous. Amen. These words ought to even be written on paper. grieves me to even talk about them. So there's no payment for sin, but satisfaction that upholds God's moral government. Now, as Millard Erickson says in his excellent section on this, he says, the, really, the great weakness of the moral government theory is there's basically no scripture to support it. It's legal theory. This is all philosophical legal theory, and it's not even, uh, and they, they don't even deal with the passages, and that, which I also notice about the emergent church in their understanding of the atonement. They don't even bother to try to um, take passages like the ones we're studying here. Our passage again is this, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all, so they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. All right, so if you're going to deny the substitutionary atonement, then you should have in your theology some careful exegetical work on all of the passages that teach substitution and try to show why you don't think they mean what they say. And if you don't even bother to do that, if you just ignore the passages that uh, have always been used by Christians since the time of Anselm to, to teach substitutionary atonement, then you're not doing serious theology. 
And that's the real negative of postmodern theology. This, this, this idea that you can safely ignore anything you want to ignore. The, the, other, the way when Miller Erickson wrote his theology in probably the 70s or 80s, it was expected. If you can't deal with all of the issues that have been raised in church history, and you can't deal with even the scriptural arguments of people you disagree with, then you're not writing a systematic theology, and, you're, and you're, you can't be in the debate. Your, your stuff is deficient. It's not worth publishing. You, you haven't even entered into the debate. You have nothing to say. You, you're just blabbering. But today, the rules have changed. You can write a whole book on the atonement and never once even touch on the 20 or 30 verses that teach substitution. You just ignore, ignore them like they don't, they're not even in the Bible. Uh, Ryan. Just to give you some examples <clears throat> regarding what you're saying, um, if you remember... When, um, when I took systematic theology, actually systematic theology three, I took it with Schultz. Oh, yeah. And Laurent Schultz is... Uh, and by the way, you didn't have to read this, did you? Yes, I, well, for the first, yes that's what, that was going to be my point. We, it, we, it hadn't been so far removed that Millard, Erickson's systematic theology book, had been removed. That was still the text that everyone had to, to read. But what was interesting is that's what we had to read during, you know, for our assignments, because it was required for everyone who taught yeah. systematic theology. Okay. Too. But the lecture had nothing to do with that. Basically, it was, our, it, it, was, it was philosophical ponderings on why we shouldn't really be thinking systematically like that and be thinking more, and this goes back to uh, a lot of the stuff you're going to be dealing with in your book uh, regarding the, you know, God is the future, this vortex, a very postmodern thing, yeah. regarding, you know, systematic theology is a study of God. And to study God in that class, we weren't studying the scriptures, we were studying what Schultz was philosophical. His, his philosophy. And then, that, okay, so when I was there, let's just, uh, yeah, Eric is the other witness here. All right. I, let, let's, just, let's just put a timeline let's, let's time to this, okay? Let's timeline. When I was studying systematic theology at the same seminary in 1992, 92, not only did I have to read Millard, I had to listen to lectures that were pertinent to what was in Millard. We had to become conversant with everybody's position. And we had to be, take tests based on the lectures, based on the book. <coughs> we had to write a major theological paper using at least ten sources, six or seven of which had to be theological journal articles. And it was a rigorous academic exercise. And I was learning Christian theology, and I was being very well equipped for what God was going to use me to do later, which is to debate theology. 92. Ryan goes, what, 99, and no more major paper, right? So he had a couple little mini papers. Uh, the lectures had nothing to do with, with this, but at least they had to read Miller. Okay, let's fast forward to 2000, what? 2005, right. there are no papers. In fact, there's no systematic theology text. Schultz uses his own book that he requires us to purchase, which is kind of convenient. <laughs> Gives him money. But then we're tested on the content of his book, and it's completely devoid of any biblical passages. For instance, he would talk about the, uh, he would deny the doctrine of original sin. And in so doing, he wouldn't deal with any of the major texts, like, for instance, Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from birth, or Psalm 51.5, or... Romans 5, he wouldn't deal with any of that 
he actually, when he supports his evidence, he appeals to Darwinian evolution. So here we have the, ev the, the elevation of the general revelation to the special revelation. And so you're right, it's just a, it's a uh, throwing out of the scriptures is the final authority. And th they don't even use Millard anymore. Uh, yeah, there, there, it was, there was no systematic theology right. text of it. Now, that seminary, this guy, when he wrote this book, was in charge of the, the, the Department of Theology. And this is a rock solid, this is good Baptist theology. Millard was a fabulous reading this. And the readings, not only did we have to read this, there were three other books we had to read that were readings in systematic theology that was primary source documents so that we didn't only have to discuss what Finney's theology was, we had to actually read Finney. We didn't just discuss Augustinian theology, we had to read Augustine. This was a rigorous, wonderful education. I worked and worked and worked and worked. I about killed myself, did I not? Day and night, day and night to, to, to get through this. And then they dumb it down and then, or make it inaccessible. And then the theology goes. And then now we're just talking about human reasoning. That happened in 13 years in one institution. Um, so now the, what do we have to do in response? Well, what we do is we're going to teach theology right in the local church. If you can't get it in a seminary, we'll give it to you right here. And, and Ryan is going to teach classes. We're going to teach hermeneutics. We're going to integrate theology like I'm doing today into our lectures so that you don't get taken advantage of because they keep you in the dark. And you can also get self-educated. People ask me, what's systematic theology? It, you know, there was a time where for most things it wasn't, yeah, you could go hodge, 19th century, Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, early 20th century, Millard Erickson, later 20th century. Most doctrines, you're going to get the same answers other than baptism because some are paleo-baptists and others believe, like Erickson is immersion and believer baptism. But, but on most doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of satisfaction, uh, uh, doctrine of uh, the church, you get the same answers. Yes. I mean, the, the thing that we don't realize you've been taught is that nobody agreed. But when you actually go back and look at the documents, 95% are in agreement, and 95% are in agreement by using the same passages the same way as everybody has used them, looking at them and saying this is consistent. Yeah. And when they have an inconsistency with something else, they'll go back and defend their view on why it's inconsistent by the Scripture, and then we have their arguments. Yep. You can look at their arguments compared to the evidence, and say this is a stronger position mm -hmm. or weaker position, mm -hmm. but even then you're only talking about a minor part typically of the entire whole. Now they just don't even do that. They don't have to give their arguments or their evidence. They just say it's because I said so. And if you raise an argument, it's like the kids when they fight in the sandbox going blah, 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 so you can't say anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no, no, not even a discussion. So the good point, Keith, and that's, and that's what I found to be true. And um, Rick sent me... Um, He's trying to witness his Catholic, and his Catholic was pounding on, the, on Protestants because we got 30,000 different things or whatever, and we only got one. We got the Catholic Church. And you guys don't know what you believe, and you're going all over the map. Well, your average Catholic doesn't know doctor. All right. Number two, it's, it's simply not true. It's simply not true that we've got, we're all over. The fact is, as you read the serious theology that's done from Luther, I can go back and read Luther and read mostly the same ideas that I have. Okay? 
And you can go read Edwards, or you can read Hodge, or you just go through the centuries. And most of this work has been done, and, it is, and I affirm the right to reiterate it to each generation. But not in some slipshod way where you just throw out everything and say, I'll believe whatever I want. Okay, if, I think the rules ought to still be the same. Deal with all the major doctrines that are important in the church and do so from a biblical perspective. And if you want to go off the beaten path, then you've got to have more biblical evidence for doing that than to stand on the path. All right? Um, so if somebody wants to say, well, I've rethought it and I decided the Trinity is not right, uh, fire beware. You're going off the beaten path. I don't, uh, that's, you, you shouldn't be doing that. All right, one more, ransom theory. Now, this one causes some people some concern, the ransom theory. The reason it concerns people is because it was believed by the church for the early on. Origen taught it. Augustine taught it. And because it was so believed by the early church fathers, some people say it must be the right one. But you don't find the truth just by reading early church fathers. You've got to go back to the Bible. That's like these mystics now that want to go back to medieval times and find mysticism. Okay, that's true. The early church fathers taught the ransom theory of the atonement. But the question is, is it biblical? What's the ransom theory of the atonement? Now, Anselm was the one who finally was reading the Bible and said it's wrong and taught substitution. It's, it, was, uh, it, it basically says that atonement is about the battle with Satan. It isn't about between God and us, our sin, God's justice, it's about Satan's right to rule the world that he supposedly gained from Adam. By the way, this is still taught today in the Word of Faith movement. Uh, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, that whole bunch teaches the ransom theory of the atonement. And Greg Boyd has a version of it that's, I mean, he, true to Boyd, he can create his own theology however he sees fit. He's a very brilliant man, and he calls his Christus Victor. But it's, it's really uh, just a first cousin of the ransom theory of the atonement because it's all about Satan and God. Satan has the power in the world. Satan has rights. Okay, uh, if somebody's going to teach the ransom theory of the atonement, I was just reading some of these apostles and prophets that teach this too. They, they'll go to the passage where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, and Satan says, all of this has been given over to me. If you'll worship me, I'll give it to you. Now, they, from what Satan says, and of course Jesus says you should worship the Lord your God, they're, 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 they're implying, they say it implies that Satan really is the legitimate holder of all the power in the world. Okay? And based on that, they create this whole theory. Let me just kind of give you this scenario. And this is how it's taught by the Word of Faith people, their version of the ransom theory. Satan, God gave Adam the authority over the earth, which is true to a certain extent. But these people take that to be universal. I mean, in other words, absolute authority. They take delegated authority to be transferred authority. See, Peter Wagner even uses that term. Jesus transferred his authority to the church. This, this comes from his ransom theory. So the authority of God is transferred, not delegated, because if it's delegated, you still hold it. And you can say to whoever you delegated it to, if they screw up, you pull it back or you can fire them at least in a company, right? But they say it's transferred. Adam has it. Adam gives it to Satan. When Adam committed what they called high treason, he turned the world over to Satan, and Satan became the legal title holder and, 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 and 
authority in the entire world over everything. Okay? Now, Jesus came to get it back, to get this authority back. And so, now this is the Word of Faith version of it. Their version is, when Jesus died, and this comes from E.W. Kenyon, he uh, lost his divinity when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They interpret that to mean <coughs> removed the Holy Spirit and left Jesus as mere man, no different than, than any other man, other, other than, you know, he, he had a few more things going for him. And as a mere man, he goes into hell and fights Satan. And they were man against man on even keel, but Jesus wins. And so that when he wins, he has now ransomed, he has plundered this authority away from Satan, and, he, and he's raised from the dead. Now, according to this theory, when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, go therefore, he's giving the authority to the church. All right? He ransomed us from Satan. And, and there's not every church father taught all this stuff. Most of them didn't, but this is what's turned into today. So he gives it to the church. Now, the church goes and fumbles it back to Satan through failure and neglect and, and not having apostles and prophets. Okay? So Satan got it back again. Now, what's going to happen is, according to the apostles and prophets movement, God's going to raise up a new breed of man, that's their term, a new breed of man, this many-membered man-child, and, he's, and this new church is going to be the incarnation of Christ, and the church is going to get authority over all of the earth back from Satan to present it to Jesus. And I know that that's what it's taught because I spent 17 hours reading that on the way to Barbados, the guys that teach this. Yes. And I think that we don't disagree that God's given Satan authority over the world, and Satan gave Satan gave Rome to Nero in some way, but God gave Rome to Nero at the same time. It's not inconsistent uh-huh. with God's own working. And God commands us through Paul and commanded the Christians at the time of Paul to obey Nero because that was God's authority, and then God set it up. So God isn't. So we don't dispute that things happen and God allows authorities that are even unrighteous to be in authority. But our hope isn't in taking the authority back and being a rebellious you know, cell to go back and fight and take and conquer Satan. We believe that it's already happened and then when the king comes back, it'll be manifest. Right now, God saved us out of this sinful world by faith and we continue to live with the effects of sin around us being manifest in ourselves and in the lives of those around us as we, as we go forward. Yeah. yeah, we don't deny that the whole world lies in the wicked one, but we do deny that because that's true, therefore God doesn't have authority over his own world. We believe God always has authority over all things. Amen. Yes. I was just going to say what you described a minute ago. It sounds like they just mixed Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, and the word faith movement, because why don't you just say Lucifer and Jesus are spiritual brothers duking it out with each other, and the church is going to, you know, be able to clean up the, the world and set up God's kingdom for him like Roman Catholicism <laughs> believes. I know. There's these heirs or first cousins, many first cousin heirs. Um, well, let me quick go over some of my notes here, then we'll continue to talk about it. According to this theory, ransom was paid to Satan. Now, the Bible does say Jesus became a ransom. 
But is it paid to God or Satan? Who was paid? We say God. They say Satan. Man was rightfully Satan. Satan accepted Christ as the prize for which he gave up the rest. But, according to his theory, God tricks Satan by hiding Christ's divinity. Now, this is the historical version. Okay, so, so God is offering Christ to Satan in order to get man back. But Satan doesn't know that Jesus is also God. According, this is the historical one, not the word of faith. Okay, back in, in church history. And so, so, okay, here, you get Jesus, I get man. Okay, deal. And then when he gets Jesus, it turns out Jesus is a bigger deal than he thought. And he whoops Satan and comes back out of the grave. And Satan was defeated and, 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 got, and God deceived Satan and tricked him. Uh, the effects are not toward God or man, but toward Satan. So Satan becomes kind of the key player in this ransom theory of the atonement. Yes. I think a lot of these teachings come down to the fact that they're, they just lack the, they don't realize the sovereignty of God. And uh, ultimately, you know, Satan or his angels, fallen, fallen angels can't do anything without permission from God. So, you know, we need to worry about God's. We need God to worry about where about. we're at with God. Exactly. You're right. And that's all. When I was in Barbados talking about spiritual warfare and the apostles, I, I really emphasized that over and over again. If you look at, for example, well, wasn't, well, I was in Galatians, I think, last week in the sermon. Remember that thing about if you go back to the week in beggarly things, you go back to the stoichia? In other words, the way Satan holds humans in captivity is by reminding God that they're sinners and that God's righteous. Remember, he's accusing them day and night before God. Well, how'd they overcome him? By the blood of the Lamb. What did the blood of the Lamb do? It appeased God's wrath against their sin. So Satan is saying, look at the wicked sinner. You don't want that one in your kingdom. Look at them. You're a just God. You can't have that one because he's going to mess everything up. He's not holy. And the Lord looks at the one and says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. I see the righteousness of Christ. And that's how we defeat Satan. The same thing is said in Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's oh, right. Okay. Okay. Once again, you're preaching my sermon. I'm <laughs> preaching on the full armor of God today. Never I'm fails. sorry. I didn't try to. I'm always preaching Ryan's sermon. But yeah, I, I was going right to Colossians. And this, this really, I think that, and this is the point that I'm going to make in my sermon, is so much spiritual warfare teaching takes our eyes off the cross, of modern yeah. spiritual warfare teaching. And that's what we always need to remember, that the real, the real issue is sin. Amen. That's the real issue. And we see that in Colossians. Um, when you were uh, dead, this is 2.13, I'll, this is going to be in my sermon also. When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive, to get, alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And in light of this... When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Amen. So it's all on the cross. And we always have to keep our eyes fixed on the cross and the one who endured it. And then, then we, that's where we have yeah. our triumph. Absolutely. And as you read there, the host, what was hostile against us was the law. Which yeah, the law was the hostile thing that was coming against us was the law. Like, remember Luther's history of how, how you just couldn't escape guilt and the justice of God. It was a horrible thing that was going to destroy him. And no matter how hard he worked, and no matter what he did, he couldn't escape from it until the Lord took the blinders off of his eyes when he was, he was going to teach Romans. And he saw the just shall live by faith. And, and all of a sudden, God's justice became a, a hope rather than a threat. 
Uh, what was the name of the book that you read on the Word of Faith moment on, on your trip? What? Um, okay, I read one book that I read that I quoted from at Faith at Risk was called Confronting the Powers by C. Peter Wagner. All right? C. Peter Wagner it has full, in his own book, all right, he's a well-educated for Fuller Seminary. He was from Fuller Seminary. And in his own book, he's repeating all of these word of faith ideas. He said that Jesus never did a single ministry, I mean, single miracle or work in his entire life on earth as, as, both, as God, out of his divinity. He was no different than you and I when he walked the earth, other than he was God, but, he, but, he, but all of that is, is this uh, kenosis, this uh, false kenosis doctrine. And so the implication is there's no reason we can't do everything Jesus did and more. See Peter Wagner, Confronting the Powers. That's that book. The other book I read was Apostles and Prophets and the Coming Move of God by Bill Hammond with an introduction by C. Peter Wagner. And that one, in that book, Hammond reiterates every doctrine of the latter rain movement. Don't believe these people that say, oh, the latter rain movement, we don't believe that anymore. IHOP has stuff on their website. Oh, we don't believe the manifested sons and all this stuff. All of it is in Hammond's book. And I have documentation for it, and I, and I did that. You haven't heard it. I only did it in Barbados. And I'm hoping they'll get me the, uh, 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 the video. But I document that every major claim by the heretical latter rain movement is reiterated by Bill Hammond and endorsed by C. Peter Wagner, including the idea that Jesus was walking the earth no different than any other man in what he was doing. Of course, what does that do? What does that doctrine do when it says Jesus only did stuff out of his humanity, not his deity? Well, it removes proof of his deity. Yeah, so now you're back to the moral influence theory of the atonement or the, or the ransom theory or something, but not satisfaction. So Jesus, uh, so then everything he did that can't possibly prove his deity because we could do it too if we were just good enough. But the Bible claims that what he did does prove his deity. When Peter sees the miraculous catch of fish, he, he, he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Because he saw he was confronted by deity. Okay. Wagner teaches that uh, also, you know, he did the signs and wonders thing with Wimber. Wimber. Yeah. But they teach he was not fully God, but you can have the anointing and it's transferable. Uh huh. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's the power that you perform signs and wonders on. Right. But then, so then you have all these little anointed ones. And the little anointed ones means little Christs. And Bill Hammond, in his book, and you've got to read it carefully because he hides it. He'll have about like three paragraphs, and in one sentence that's almost off the topic will be promoting the latter rain. And, and I found it in it. I got all the quotes. But he claims that the church will become a perfect incarnation of Christ before Christ returns. And has to. He can't. Yeah, they say hell in the heavens until. Jesus cannot come back until we're perfect incarnation of Christ. And Bill Hammond teaches that the harlot Babylon in Revelation, economic Babylon, religious Babylon, the whole system will be defeated by end-time church, not by Jesus himself. And I quote that in my seminar. If I don't get a good video from Barbados, I will preach 
the same thing to an empty room up here and get on video if I have to. I might invite a few of you. But I, I need to make a DVD of that. Okay, try and then we got to go. Uh, this teaching, actually, the, the church I left a couple of years ago was pretty evangelical, but it affected the pastor. And he said we're all many saviors. So. We're all many saviors. Yeah, many incarnations, many Christs. But, you know, <coughs> let me give you an easy litmus test on theology here. Okay, we're talking about substitutionary atonement. That, and next week, we'll go back to our verses, and I'll expound these using the Greek. And I'll go through, I'll go through 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 in great detail and with cross-references to prove that the Bible teaches the substitutionary atonement. Now, I don't know why people get bored with something. That's, this, this is what the church has believed for centuries and it's clearly taught in the Scripture. And so, as soon as you see people departing from that, you know there's something else wrong. As Millard said, he's absolutely right. They either have a bad doctrine of God, a bad doctrine of Christ, a bad doctrine of sin, bad doctrine of man. Because there's something making them want to neglect the substitutionary atonement. They either believe God doesn't judge sin, or they believe man's not a sinner, or, or something. There's something wrong that causes the departure from the substitutionary atonement. And so, don't be fooled by this term, theories of the atonement, because um, the, the critics, our critics are going to say this penal substitute theory. They do that with everything, like uh, the correspondence theory of truth. In other words, what you see is what you really see. Well, that's just a theory. Okay. Um, today is Communion Sunday. So be thinking about what the Lord did for you on the cross. And what he did was he died, he shed his blood to avert God's wrath over sin. And Jim promised me that they're going to sing, I think, for the offering, an old song that I sang when I was a brand new Christian. And the song goes, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to that old song. So God bless you and help us with the chairs and we'll see you upstairs.